For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel and Republican political consultant Neva Hill joining me over Zoom video conference. Lawmakers are taking the governor to court over the budget. Lawmakers are suing Stitt to force him to call the Board of Equalization together and declare a state of emergency. Stitt says he won't do it because lawmakers are playing politics by not funding his digital transformation fund. Neva, what are your thoughts of this dispute? Well, I think it's always uh, it's always interesting when the governor chooses to pick a fight with the appropriators. I mean, you have <laughs> the instance where he basically has doubled down with the legislative leadership and they in turn have gone to the Supreme Court and basically said that uh, Senate Bill 199 is now law that the governor, uh, by not uh, by not doing anything, it went into effect and now the push is to get the Board of Equalization to meet and to uh, uh, declare to, to declare the revenue failure. So it's going to be interesting to see what the court does. But I think in the long term, it's going to be even more interesting to see what happens in this budget process, because clearly it's becoming, um, I mean, whether they want to admit it or not publicly, it is developing into a very toxic situation. And as we all know, when uh, when the uh, appropriations chairs and leadership decide uh, on a budget, I mean, oftentimes uh, they, they make decisions and sometimes they have uh, uh, clearly have political consequences. So I think I think the governor, you know, it's unfortunate that uh, that we're going down this road, uh, particularly in the time that we're in. And hopefully we can get some sort of swift resolution uh, and move forward so that they can, in fact, get this budget finalized and and uh, complete the session. Ryan. You know, I, I had a Capital Insider who I'm sure would rather remain unnamed when, with a comment like this, but he, he said that the governor was the king of the unforced error. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, whether it was the, the tribal gaming compacts uh, or now this uh, this budget fight over the digital transformation fund uh, in the middle of a pandemic, um, the, the governor just seems to have a propensity to pick fights where he doesn't need to pick fights and and to to really throw a wrench in what should otherwise be a time of emergency at the Capitol. Uh, lawmakers showed up. They did their job. They put these bills on his desk. They've all become law now, two by signature, and as Neva said, one by default because he didn't act on it. Um, you know, the, the pandemic's putting a strain on a lot of relationships. Uh, we know that divorce rates are expected to rise on the other side of this. And so maybe uh, it shouldn't surprise us that the legislature and the governor are also fighting uh, like a lot of other folks are. Um, maybe this won't rise to the level of a long lasting impasse. Um, but I think it's fair to say that if there was any remainder of a honeymoon between the legislature and the governor. over uh, And. Uh, it's, it's just, it's just done. And I think that the court's going to have to weigh in here. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how fast the court weighs, weighs in, um, and, and what they say. Normally courts are reluctant to step into a political fight. Uh, they will say that it's beyond their jurisdiction, that those are political questions, that they're best resolved by the people within those political bodies, whether that's the legislature or the executive branch, and then ultimately by voters. Uh, but right now, uh, and, and this right now, we've got this impasse. The court's going to have to act. Uh, and I think that it's it's difficult to imagine them not taking uh, the legislature side on this. 
Neva, well, could, you know, what's, yeah. what's interesting when we really look at this suit, I mean, the, the key point to me is that that Governor Stitt is one member of the seven-person Board of Equalization. And if he, as the chair, is permitted to hold up board meetings, if he has that kind of power, it's really, as the, as the lawsuit described it, it's tantamount to a super veto over the appropriations process. So, and there's clearly no, uh, no power acknowledged like that in our state constitution. So it's a serious question that needs to be resolved and be resolved quickly. It appears the governor's office might not have been fully on point when it said the governor was going to be releasing more than 400 inmates through commutation. But the pardon, the pardon parole board says the sentence against the inmates were commuted, but some are serving prison sentences for other convictions on top of the ones commuted. The ACLU Oklahoma says the number of released prisoners will be closer to 100. Ryan, how did this mistake happen? Well, that's a that's a really good question. Again, king of the unforced error uh, in Governor Stitt's administration, they came out with this number of 400, which was an important number. I mean, there is a looming crisis within our prison systems. Uh, that crisis predates the pandemic, uh, but it exists right now at a, in an even larger magnitude uh, of what we're what we're standing on the precipice of right now. And when the governor came out last week and said. We had, you know, nearly 400 inmates that were going to do early release. They were going to be encouraged to do two weeks of self-quarantine so that they could uh, protect themselves. We already have cases of COVID-19 among staff and among inmates uh, at, at facilities around the state right now. I've been talking to experts in the field uh, and have good reason to believe that an outbreak in states' prisons would take up an enormous number of hospital beds across the state, but in particular in rural areas where a lot of these prisons are often located. Um, and I also think that it's important to note that the rate of spread, I mean, we've seen this in other states right now, that the rate of spread in prisons and jails uh, and for people in custody uh, is much faster than it is in the general public. So there is a there's a crisis. It's looming. The governor, you know, I think has the intention to act here. I mean, he demonstrated that last Friday. His actions have fallen short because of, uh, you know, they didn't, I don't think that they looked into it enough, but there are things that he, he can, he can get close to that 400 number and can exceed it if he really wants to. And, and I hope that he will. They need to look at things like compassionate release. They need to try to get those additional 300 folks out. Um, and then they need to begin to think about, um, you know, pushing, uh, pushing some efforts on local leaders, you know, local sheriffs, uh, local courts. Uh, to begin to release people that are being held on arbitrary bail amounts in jails right now. And that's pre-trial. These folks haven't been convicted of anything. Neva. Well, I mean, it's again, a head scratcher. Uh, we, we have this instance, just as Ryan described last week, the governor, uh, the governor's office basically celebrating this prospect of uh, 404 people, I believe was the number uh, that would be returning home uh, uh, on April 16th. And now there uh, followed that was a comment by the pardon and parole director, uh, basically saying that the number would be substantially lower, possibly fewer than 100. And we have all of this kind of back and forth going on when the governor now is infusing into the conversation this week, the idea that it's time to kind of open things back up, uh, look for, uh, look for uh, basically getting folks back to work and this whole conversation of maybe uh, uh, loosening uh, all of the uh, 
restrictions. And that's a big question mark. There's been talk, but no specifics, dates thrown around, nothing specific. So I think next week will be a uh, will be a very interesting week to see what happens uh, when we are coming up on the already in place April, uh, April 29th. Um, a date that that will have to be affected one way or the other. So, you know, again, I think I think there's a lot of uh, things going on inside government circles and and inside uh, certainly the give and take with the governor of legislature, pardon parole board, you name it. But the public, I think, largely is tuned out on all of this. I mean, they're they're in they're in a different mode, and when that mode changes. And they start paying perhaps a little more attention to some of these details. Uh, we'll see what the reaction really is. Uh, I think in a in a broader context with the public at large. But what about that fact that we are actually talking about? Uh, Governor Sitt says we're leveling off. That the peak is going to be uh, April thirtieth. That's what people are paying attention to right now. And that's it, it, it's 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 kind of a mixed message where you got well we're leveling off, but the peak's going to be in. 15 days. You can't exactly. level off and have I, a peak. It's, and... It's, I think it is confusing. I think it's very confusing. And I think it, uh, it gives rise to everyone's interpretation of what those dates are or what that means. And there needs to be clear messaging uh, to all Oklahomans what's going on. And I think, uh, I think that's going to be critical, uh, particularly in the days to come as we come up on these deadlines. And Ryan, I want to ask that question to you too. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is not the time to relax efforts right now. We, we, you know, there's a strange paradox uh, where the social distancing efforts that we've seen in Oklahoma, uh, sometimes in spite of the lack of leadership from folks like Governor Stitt uh, and around the nation seems to be working. We've seen a flattening of the curve, uh, both in Oklahoma, we've seen a flattening of the curve in many areas around the nation. And what that's done, though, the paradox of that is that because it's worked, the uh, kind of the the fake news that says that this is all a hoax, uh, that people are overreacting. Uh, those those uh, those circles now are saying, "We told you so. We told you this wasn't that big of a deal." Um, well, it's not that big of a deal because you know the people like my, myself and everybody on you know and the in the real news, uh, you know, saying that we needed to social distance. We had to you know, take these extreme measures, um, both personally and economically. Um, that. We took those and we've we've largely been taking those and it's worked. So it's it's a strange paradox that we're in right now. Um, and the, we need leadership from the governor, from our municipal leaders. This is not the time to relax those efforts. And, you know, we there are still critical things that we need to be doing, because especially with vulnerable populations and populations that are concentrated, like in our jails and our prisons, spread can happen very fast. And so even though we see a peak date and we've got a sense of there, there's there's going to be some normalcy uh, at some point. We still don't really know when that is, and there's there needs to be a, a a return to normalcy that's driven by facts and by public health experts, and not by politicians who want to get back to normal and want to you know start the economy up faster so that they face fewer economic and political consequences. This is well, this is still serious. That's right. And, you know, the other point is that you have these uh, mayors of the cities and and uh, towns across Oklahoma that uh, also have uh, taken 
uh, taken measures sometimes uh, in different ways and in, in the different communities and how all how will all of that really uh, change will it be will it be lengthened will it be uh, will it be basically uh, taken off uh, we don't you know we don't know this and so what we don't need is a lot of confusion factors so I think it is really incumbent upon all of the folks in elected positions that are in these decision making uh, places uh, to be very concerted in making sure that information gets out clearly and accurately. The Oklahoma Tax Commission worries our state might be entering into a worst case scenario when it comes to collections. The decline in gas prices and the collapse of energy in Oklahoma was bad enough, but the addition of the economic impact of COVID-19 might result in a re- revenue failure for next year and the year after that. Neva, how concerned should Oklahomans be with this news? Oh, I think very concerned. And I think uh, the uh, the tax commission director uh, this week uh, basically said, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, this is kind of the worst case scenario. Uh, everything that was kind of on the table that they, they factored in, uh, hoping that uh, not all of it certainly, and maybe not any of it would take place, is all taking place. And so you have budgets that were, um, uh, that were built on $50 a barrel oil. And now, you know, we're seeing this week uh, crude at uh, $19 and $20 uh, a, a barrel. I mean, we're, we're seeing in the oil and in the energy uh, sector, I mean, we're now seeing the lowest uh, uh, sustained period of uh, uh, in 35 years. I mean, so, I mean, we're in, you know, we're in a real um, we're in a real difficult spot when we have such unstable revenues. I mean, and we see even in tax collections for the month of March, uh, they came in $18 million under what was estimated. Um, and that was even when we were kind of in this place where people were out buying and stockpiling and, and doing things. You also had business closures uh, the historic unemployment, um, the stay-at-home orders, all of this, you know, kind of converging at the same time. And we really don't, you know, we have no idea at this point, I think, realistically, what what the future looks like. And yet these folks have to write a budget and they have to, they have to make uh, uh, the best informed, intelligent decisions in this process. And I think, uh, you know, I think it is beyond challenging. I mean, it's not a, is not a even a big enough word to say the uh, task ahead of them. Ryan, you know, our our revenues run anywhere from six to eight, 18 months behind events, and so what what we're seeing right now uh, in terms of current revenue collections is really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, you know, there's been even in even setting aside COVID nineteen for a moment and just looking at the the global oil war that's been happening, uh, OPEC gets together. And they decide to uh, to reduce production uh, to try to increase prices to try to uh, artificially inflate prices. You know, we're looking at like Neva said. You know, this morning as we're taping, it's around nineteen dollars a barrel, mm-hmm. um, uh, close to nineteen twenty dollars a barrel. Uh, and OPEC's decision to reduce production was supposed to drive that up. It hasn't worked. I mean, it just hasn't worked. Demand is still outpacing uh, uh, production, and we're we're still at this. Uh, really critical point where even as we begin to see fewer dollars coming in from gross production taxes, the Oklahoma economy is so tied to the oil and gas community that we're going to see this in terms of income tax collections. We'll probably see it in terms of property tax collections. We're going to see, um, you know, 
private consequences, not just in terms of revenue coming into the state, but defaults on on loans, business loans, personal loans, mortgages. Um, you know, this is going to have far-reaching consequences well into the future, and you know, being able to it's it's right now. I th- I would say that anybody who tells you that they know what's going to happen uh, doesn't know what they're talking about because it's this is so unprecedented. We are in a worst case scenario. We know. I think that what we can say for for sure is that things are going to be very difficult from a uh, both the, the state's economy and from the revenue picture that our state elected officials have to appropriate for a very long time to come. And Neva, since Absolutely. Oklahoma is so d- dependent on on sales tax, on income taxes, the some of the people in some lawmakers and even the governor can maybe be forgiven for wanting to get Oklahomans back to work because without it, the state doesn't make any money. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're in a we're in a place where I mean the 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 impact of all of this uh, is very bleak. I mean, uh, even uh, the Senate Appropriations and Budget Chair Roger Thompson this week he said we're in a time we're living in a time that we've never seen before. I mean, so so the the weight of all of this is clearly on these folks as they're as they're grappling with the details, trying to figure out and recognizing that the full impact has not yet been seen. Just like Ryan said, I mean, we the snowball effect not only statewide. But, you know, the implications nationally, I mean, things like uh, the airline industry, when you have, uh, according to the FFA, I mean, we're we're at about running at about a 5% capacity right now. Um, I mean, it takes a long time to bring all of this back. And I think... uh, I think that that's going to be again one of the challenges with the with the, the public uh, when things do uh, begin to resume in some fashion um, a different state of normalcy. It won't be normal again uh, for a long, long time, if ever. Uh, but but in this new era that we will be entering, it is going to be uh, very important, again, um, to be realistic at what the economic uh, downturn of all of this and the implications are and not and not be unrealistic in terms of uh, uh, believing that there's just going to be sufficient dollars uh, to do everything that we need to do, just as we're seeing at the national level. So. Ryan, that's all for the people who depend on state government for different things, for services, for this. This is going to be detrimental. Libraries, schools, colleges, roads, everything that the government does for people. I think that we're at a spot not right now where we're going to have to entirely rethink, you know, what is possible uh, for government. Uh, and, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is a time for political imagination. Uh, this is a time to to really rethink, um, you know, what's what we're able to do. And, you know, and when we think about you know, state government, you know, looking at the federal government, I just received my uh, my notice from NPR uh, that the amount of money that was appropriated for the payroll protection program, those PPP loans mm-hmm. that a lot of small businesses have been getting to try to keep people on payroll, even if they're not coming into work, but try to keep them on payroll so that they've got money coming in, um, that they've run out of money in that. So Congress is going to have to come back in. Uh, they've said that they're going to do that, but you know Congress is probably going to come back in, appropriate more money there. And you know I think that we we are going to be at a spot for quite a while now where a lot of what uh, government is doing uh, is going to be to try to uh, mitigate and, and uh, mitigate the 
the the harms of this pandemic, but then to try to undo it and try to lift us back into some sort of stability. Um, and then also, you know, I think you have to consider the fact that the rest of the world hasn't stopped. I mean, we we have you know we've talked about COVID nineteen, but at at right here at home in Oklahoma, we had we had other challenges that we're already facing. Those challenges didn't go away. Uh, you know, at at a at a national and a global level, uh, there are challenges and other crises that we're we're having to address. And you know, what's what's the next shock uh, to the system? And trying to be ready for that as as well as we can. I think that we've learned that with COVID nineteen, that leadership matters. Uh, we've seen a failure in leadership at the at the national level with the with the Trump administration, and you know, thinking about what what we need to do to be better prepared next time and to recover from this. Those are going to be the two questions that policymakers need to be asking at the same time. In non-COVID-19 news, last week was candidate filing for the 2020 elections. This year, Oklahomans will begin voting in primaries on June 30th. Neva, were there any surprises from the three-day period? Well, I, th- I think that there are always some surprises. Um, <laughs> I think I think when we look at it first overall, I mean, the fact that uh, uh, eight of the 24 senators uh, up for re-election drew no opponent and 39 of the 101 state representatives filed unopposed. I mean, I think when you when you look at that number, that's 38 percent of legislators that uh, came back in unopposed. I think that's a, I think that's a significant point. And really, when you look at the kind of the overall, you know, kind of the overall uh, mix, it, one of the takeaways, I think, is uh, what's been kind of uh, stated as what uh, what's old is new again. And by that, what we have are five former House members that decided to file to seek their former House seats uh, in 2020. Uh, you had uh, the House Minority Leader uh, uh, that had uh, lost basically to uh, a, a person who didn't even campaign uh, two years ago, running again for that seat. Uh, you have a, a former um, Republican representative uh, from uh, the Muskogee area had two years left on uh, his uh, uh, term and was defeated, coming back now to challenge the guy that beat him. Um, and again, you have others like that. So that's always an interesting, kind of an interesting twist uh, in, in the campaigns. But to me, the bigger takeaway was the fact that it was the, the U.S. Senate race and the congressional races that really had more, more people fighting yeah. against those incumbents than uh, many of these folks at the local level. Um, and as we all know, that's a very monumental uh, uh, adventure to take on, to say the least, when you're taking on an incumbent, and even more so in the environment that we're in right now. Ryan. Well, you know, like LL Cool J said, you know, don't call it a comeback. All these folks wanting to come back. <laughs> I, you know, I, I've, I've, I've been out now for, uh, for going on, for going on a decade, and you know, I, I can't. You know, I think as a recovering politician, you can't ever say that you've totally you've totally kicked it. Uh, but right now, the idea uh, that all these folks are, you know, Shane Jett uh, challenging Ron Sharp uh, over in Pottawatomie County for that Senate seat. You know, that's going to be a really interesting primary uh, because I think, you know, Shane Jett will walk into that with his own set of backers and funders. He's a he's a great campaigner. Uh, he has built an, an enormous network over there. And, you know, I think that um, you know, that's going to be a really interesting seat to watch. Uh, and, and Ron Sharp has certainly, you know, uh, has a number of political opponents and enemies out at the Capitol. 
Um, you know, that, that to me is going to be one of the more interesting state legislative races. The old uh, House seat that I used to hold, uh, House District 28, you've got a couple of Republicans that have filed over there. One of them, a former Democratic member of the House, Danny Williams. Uh, and you've, and they're, they're going to be challenging Yvonne Choate, who will be the Democratic nominee. That's going to be an interesting race, both in the primary uh, and I think in the general. Uh, that's going to be an interesting race. And then, you know, like Neva said, you know, these, these congressional races, uh, Kendra Horn and the fifth district, the presumptive Democratic nominee there, she's, uh, you know, like 99.99999% uh, going to be the, the Democratic, uh, if not 100% going to be the Democratic uh, nominee. Uh, and, you know, you know, looking at nine Republicans that have filed over there. That's going to be quite uh, so- a race, yeah. It's going to be quite a race, uh, almost certainly a runoff, even even though you've got, you know, I think, you know, Senator Bice has, um, walks in, is the uh, the insider's front runner. Uh, but it's going to be difficult for anybody to get over 50% in that. And so uh, Kendra Horn's going to be able to sit over on the sidelines. She'll have a primary, but it's not really a primary. So she's going to be able to raise some money, run some ads, and then get ready for what will be one of the uh, most closely watched U.S. congressional races in the country right. uh, for the 2020 cycle? I, I think unquestionably that will be uh, in the t- in the top five, if, if maybe not number one or two across the nation. I agree with you, Ryan. And I think the important point, let's remember, November general election, presidential uh, uh, ticket at the top, um, and that that always changes the landscape uh, in Oklahoma, as well as across the country in terms of turnout. Certainly in Oklahoma, I mean, we've not seen uh, we've not seen a Democrat uh, uh, be successful uh, uh, winning the state since 1964. I mean, this is an opportunity for uh, Republican straight party voting on the ballot, uh, oftentimes as uh, Democrats doing exactly the same thing as Republicans in that in that vein. So, I mean, when we look at past uh, past elections, when we look at uh, where we are right now, I think it will be very interesting to see uh, this referendum and this uh, upcoming general election, what it looks like. But for Oklahoma, uh, all of the trends show that it's overwhelmingly uh, uh, looking to be a very, very strong Republican year once again. One note on the legislative uh, mix in terms of filings that I think is noteworthy is the fact that we had uh, Representative Ben Loring, who was a Democrat from Miami, um, he decided to not run for re-election. No one uh, I mean, you know, basically no one, uh, uh, the only person that filed, I guess I should say, mm-hmm. was a Republican. Uh, so uh, he picked up the seat, uh, basically no opposition, uh, just uh, put his name on the ballot and now is a representative elect and will be representing that area uh for the next two years. So there are always these twists that no one expects. And, and sometimes you have to look at that and wonder, you know, who dropped the ball on all sides in terms <laughs> of not paying attention that, uh, that there was a seat that, uh, that, that was in that, was in that position and turned out that way. And national referendums, uh, Abby Broyles, Jim Inhofe. I know that uh, Senator Inhofe walks in with this an enormous advantage in terms of fundraising and name recognition. But that could become a race that nationally, you know, you know similar to uh, to the to the Ted Cruz. Uh, race uh, in, in Texas where Beto O'Rourke came out of nowhere. I mean, there could be a ton of national money that comes into that. Abby 
Broyles is an amazing candidate. I think she's going to have probably more traction than folks give her credit for. And then the second thing that I'll, I'll just end on is that we have to figure out how to vote in these elections. Oklahoma has an arcane absentee voting process. Uh, there's a coalition coming together right now uh, to begin to work on some solutions to make sure that every Oklahoman is able to vote without having to interface either with a notary uh, or have to show up in person. So we need to work on our absentee voting system so that everybody, regardless of how you vote, gets to weigh in in these elections. And we'll be talking well, a lot about people more. have an opportunity to vote. I mean, absentee, I mean, can be, I mean, absentee is a method and a useful method when needed. But uh, in-person voting, both in-person early and on Election Day, is still where the vast majority of Americans and Oklahomans uh, exercise their right to vote. And I don't see that changing anytime, uh, anytime soon. I think the education uh, in general of just reminding people and educating people on the importance of uh, making their making their voice heard and going and and going to the uh, the polls on election day or using the absentee process if necessary that's the story that needs to be told more and more and we'll be talking a lot more about that in the next few months as we get closer to these elections and Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU KOSU its staff or management Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.